welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a place where we uh, look at spirituality from a non-judgmental framework. We are exploring spirituality in all kinds of ways. In this new year, 2021, we're talking about health and spirituality, and we are fortunate to have with us today a best-selling author. Her name is Faith Harper, Dr. Faith Harper, and she has written a series of books with the F-bomb in the title. So for those of you who are moms out there and your kids are listening to my podcast right now, I just want to warn you that uh, she has written a book, a series of books, Un-F Your Adulting, Un-F Your Intimacy, Un-F Your Brain. The one that I read was Un-F Your Brain because uh, I felt like that was perfect for all that I've been through. As you guys have heard my story and what I've come through uh, it, it in my uh, my my video producer, Matt Cox, had read the book. He introduced me to it, and I loved it. And Faith agreed to do an interview with us. So thank you so much, Faith. Why don't you take a minute and just uh, introduce yourself real quickly to our audience, kind of give us your background and where you're from. You're, are you in San Antonio, Texas right now? I am in San Antonio, Texas, and that's usually, maybe that's underselling, but I always say I'm just, you know, a private practice practitioner in San Antonio who happens to have done a lot of other interesting things. Um, I, uh, I, so my, my PhD is one that um, incorporates a lot of research and teaching. So writing was a very natural extension of that, of being able to communicate ideas and te- make things that seem very complex on the surface, as simple as they actually are. Um, the So you mentioned that you had read the Brain Book, and that was my first book, and it continues to be a bestseller, much to everybody's shock. It's one of those books that sells more every month than it has the month before, even though it's been out for four, months, four years. And have written other books in the series since then. Um, and I've, like, I've done a TEDx talk, and I've done a few other things, but I'm really... When it comes down to it, just somebody that really likes being in prom- private practice and doing trauma work and drinking coffee and eating tacos. <laughs> uh, my kids are grown, so it's just me and my husband and the cats at this point. And, you know, life is pretty chill, so I can do a lot of writing. Well, that's awesome. Um, I am uh, loving reading your book. I noticed that you had quoted one of my favorite authors was C.S. Lewis in your hmm unf your brain book and so uh that was interesting and then you also had in your bibliography gary chapman the five love languages oh, yeah. and so i've always been a fan of his work as well but tell us a little bit about your uh, faith background since we're we're going to be talking about mental health i really want to dive into trauma and some of the stuff that's mm-hmm. in in uh in your in your brain book but um i wanted to hear a little bit about your background as far as faith sure. goes. um so I grew up, um, I'm biracial. Um, my mom is um, Irish, second gen American Irish, so very Irish, and grew up very Roman Catholic. Priest does not face you, you know, while doing the liturgy, kind of Catholic. Um, my dad, who is Choctaw, grew up Church of Christ, which seems to be sort of at odds with each other, but there we go. Um, <laughs> And my dad discovered Catholicism when he met my mom, and I grew up very progressive Catholic. Um, And he actually became a Roman Catholic deacon and is an ecumenical Catholic priest. 
So super progressive, marching in pride parades, but also grew up kind of gnawing on the catechesis as, you know, my teething ring. So was, you know, and my mom was a spiritual director in the church. And so there was always spirituality was always there, but it was something to be discussed. It was something to be questioned and talked about. You didn't have to like, you know, take your, your spoonful of medicine and just believe, you know, I remember coming home from, sorry, and I have, I tried to kick all my cats out and I have one here. So anyone sees a tail, Iggy thinks <laughs> that she belongs everywhere. Um, we can fix that in post, I'm sure. Oh, that's um, no problem. My, um, I remember coming home very early in CDC um, Bible school for Catholics and being just like tearful and aghast because I was told that if you weren't baptized, you go to hell. And I come home and like, and I'm like four and I'm just like, what is like, this is not acceptable. What are we doing? And my mom is like, she's like, that's crap. That's not how it works. And if it does work, you can just go choose to go to hell and take care of the babies. If that's what you want to do, that's also fine because I know you like that was kind of how I was raised of being very precocious and being encouraged to be. Um, <laughs> so my parents' thing was, we want you to have something bigger than yourself. Um, I define spirituality in one of my books as purposeful belonging, which is an indigenous definition. It's the one that I used in my dissertation, mm. and it's the one that I carry through. And there, that was, I, we want you to have purposeful belonging. Mm -hmm. um, and so they encouraged me to explore other churches and those kinds of things. I ended up um, taking refuge in the Buddha, I had gone to mindfulness meditation classes at one of the Buddhist lineage groups here in town just to learn it, thinking like this will be something really great for me to teach my clients. Of course, it was for me. Um, and really, I need this for myself. And, you know, Buddhists, they don't shave your head. They don't make you wear saffron robes. They're very like, oh, you can think about it for a couple decades. No hurry. Like nobody knocks on your door and gives you literature. Um, <laughs> and... So it was even from then, it was a, um, you know, a process of exploring that, of recognizing that there was a lot of meaning here for me. And I was just a better person in that practice. Um, and I always, you know, Buddhism is very much infused in my philosophy as a therapist. I always say the Buddha was the first psychologist. So, you know, you don't have to take on that practice to get the benefit of Buddhism. And so that is my practice now. Um, my son also took refuge. Uh, he took refuge vows with me um, when he was a teenager. It was something that he really responded to. My oldest did not. He did. Um, but his his father, who we lost, um, we lost to cancer, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, was not comfortable with it. So my son put it aside and waited until his dad had passed. And he thought that like, now I can take this on without upsetting him. So um, he took his refuge vows much later, you know, to respect his his dad's discomfort. But he uh, he was he's the only kid that is you know Choctaw that you know sages the house and has mala beads and the only yeah. kid on his football team that was handing over mala beads instead of a crucifix when he was played football in San Antonio. <laughs> you know all those things. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I. I was really in when I was in rehab uh, a couple of years ago, I was introduced to a lot of uh, mindful meditation practices. Mm -hmm. I was particularly drawn to the DBT model just because, you know, as I when I got out of rehab, I started studying all these things. And Marsha mm -hmm. Linehan, I think, uh, developed her mindfulness practices in a Buddhist monastery and, you know, that kind of I thing. Call it, I call it Buddhist CBT. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. Marsha very, very much drew from that model and yeah. that's kind of one of the probably the core differences between that and act okay 
Right. And so, yeah, and I've read a little bit on ACT and yeah, CBT, all that. So anyway, it's been super helpful for me. And I'd kind of like to jump into um, your your work in your brain book. And I particularly, obviously, you start out with trauma. That's, that's mm-hmm. the big uh, context for a lot of the book, trauma. I was one who probably just three years ago would have thought that trauma was only related to people who had gone through, um, you know, sexual abuse as a child or maybe a military person who had experienced uh, trauma at war, came back home with PTSD. Um, I, I would not have been in tune with what I, and I don't know if this is a good term or not, but some, some psychologists call call it little T trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so I kind of had to rethink through my own life uh, for, through a different context or lens to, to see what maybe was back in, in my childhood that could have been a type of a trauma that shaped uh, what I thought about things. Mm-hmm. And so and how I processed emotion in particular, because what I realized as I went through therapy was that I always push down like the beach ball, pushing it under the water, my mm-hmm. negative emotions I actually would have thought my negative emotions were attached to my um, like my old nature or my evil desire. So if I was feeling anger or fear or, you know, any kind of negative emotion, I tried to just conquer it, suppress it, that kind of thing. So uh, I was fascinated in your book that you talk about how trauma can can be all over the map people are so individual that how they experience trauma is very, so maybe I think most people get big trauma, but mm-hmm. maybe talk a little bit about what other types of traumas people can experience and how that affects them even into adulthood. If, if it happened younger. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, first of all, you know, my definition of trauma is anything that overwhelms our ability to cope. Um, and the, the, you know, the body's job is to stay alive. And so it's going to pay attention to things and it's going to sort of err on the side of caution of keeping us alive and keeping us safe. So if we hit something that overwhelms our ability to cope and we don't have that time to process it and heal it and store it in this way of survivorship, then it, it stays. And that's when like PTSD is, you know, what, a a nervous system injury that our body is sort of jangly all the time and super aware of like this bad thing happened and I need to not have it happen again. Even having the experience of, you know, having your emotional life disregarded, right. Of being told that's not a good feeling to have. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be all of these things. And so you shove it down and you're told to not listen to your own intuition, to not recognize your own feelings, to not validate them and see what information they're giving you and work through them. And those kinds of things become things that in your nervous system holds. And it's things that get stored middle brain, And that it's things that then start, you know, grabbing the steering wheel from us later on in our life. And, you know, so what the, so the diagnostic and statistical manual, the one that we use to define PTSD has gotten a little better with that definition. There are certain things for, you know, reasons that make sense research wise, that are not necessarily considered trauma. It has to be something that you experience or had direct witness of. Um, though I think a lot of people, for example, who are old enough to remember the towers coming down on 9-11 really did experience that as a personal 
trauma. Um, I think even the events that happened um, on January 6th, people are, are going to recognize an experience of that as a personal trauma of this sort of anything that feels like a destabilization of the government, even though we weren't direct witness. So my definition of trauma is anything that sort of rocks us to our core in that way, and that we no longer feel safe in the world, and then our body codes is we need to pay attention to this because we're no longer safe in the world. Um, and I think once we recognize it as a nervous system injury, something very physical, it helps us with the recovery part of it. So even like even experience where you grow up in a fairly safe family, but you experience bullying or you move to a different school and you experience, bully, you know, all different, yeah. all different kinds of things in childhood can be traumatic, even though they don't in our minds, we say, oh, everybody goes through this. Right. You know, you don't right. think about it as a big deal. Right. Right. Or, you know, and you have the, you know, your parents are going through stuff. And so that, you know, ha there's issues with your own attachment in that reason. You can have parents that love you very much, but have their own struggles. Um, and that's not, you know, mean to them. It's not saying that they traumatized you, but you experience that as a trauma, that that abandonment, that sense of unsafety, whatever it is. And we can once we recognize it for what it is, then we can we can work with that. And I have a lot of people who say like, well, yeah, but that's not the same thing. I was never raped. I, you know, I wasn't in Iraq or whatever. And and I think that both things can be true. We can recognize that, okay, maybe I didn't have it as bad as other people, but that doesn't mean that what I went doesn't matter. Like both things can be true. We can have gratitude of having a mostly really good childhood, but also have things to work through. Um, otherwise it becomes this game of who has the most trauma. And there's like one person, you know, cooking over a dung fire somewhere in Borneo that has it worse than everybody else. And no one else is allowed to complain. And it doesn't work that way. We all have stuff to work. Yeah. I, um, my, most of my audience knows that I went through a pretty big meltdown personally, a, a couple of years ago and really, you know, kind of felt like I lost, well, I lost my marriage of many years. I lost my career. I lost my community, the church that I'd built. I had, I felt like I'd lost my faith even in the midst of mm -hmm. all that. So it, it felt traumatic to me. And I, I actually described it as I felt lost and being that I felt disconnected from myself and mm -hmm. even from my faith and even from my calling I, that I felt like I'd had my whole life and even from, you know, certain key people in my life. And so, you know, it, it's been interesting to go back and process stuff from childhood that I, that I wouldn't have ever thought about it being traumatic. And then, and then, having an adult experience that I guess, I guess would qualify as, as trauma. You know, um, my thing was always been downplay your negative things. Don't pay attention, you know, just work mm -hmm. past them, overpower them, subdue them, whatever. Uh, and I just found that didn't work very well. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I mean, we, we work through them, but we don't push past them. Right. It becomes part of our story. I mean, trauma recovery is no longer being a victim. It's being a survivor. That's the shift that brings us to recovery. We're not doing this eternal sunshine of the spotless mind of our experiences. You said you tried, it doesn't work. Um, so we have to, if we can't really get better, it happens. That's not going away. We can get better at it and recognize our capacity for survival and to thrive in those kinds of things can become part of that process because the brain is still doing its job it's saying like hey like you know we might be in danger here um and you know and then we ha we have to diffuse from that and recognize that that's 
trauma narrative coming up, trying to protect us, that's okay. And that's where things like metacognitive therapy can be helpful rather than getting fused up in the, the thought itself. It's our bigger self going, Hey, it's, you know, we don't, we don't need to, to worry about that. That's not very helpful for us kind of work. So you, uh, a couple of things that you talked about in your book, like r- the ruminate, you said rumination and avoiding are the same mm-hmm. thing, basically, um, or at least they, they have the same result. Um, well, and they're both trying to make sense of the process. Mm-hmm. I, I like the fact that you gave, like, it's easy to get upset with my amygdala, <laughs> but then you give it a break, you know, you say, Hey, it's doing what it was supposed to do a long time ago from an evolutionary perspective. Right. But then, but then this, my, my brain seems to want to ruminate about everything. Even if I don't feel like I have a big thing to ruminate about, it, it feels like it, it wants We're to find something. something. Yeah. yeah. It, and it just goes and goes. And that was part of what led to my meltdown was my insomnia. I only slept about three hours a night for most of my adult life. Right. So it was cause I couldn't shut my brain down. It was just all, and it wasn't always negative, but it was just always, always processing, going, 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 you know? So how do we break that ruminate and avoid cycle and move into healthy ways to deal with uh, trauma? What, what are some of the ways that we break those cycles? Well, I think, you know, you mentioned the mindfulness meditation, and that tends to be step one. And I don't mean this and we're going to, you know, sit on a cliff and achieve transcendence. I mean it in the terms of we're going to work on paying attention to the present moment so we can catch it. Because when you started mindful meditation, you started realizing, oh, my God, I'm telling myself really horrible things like all the time. Like, I'm awful. I would never say this to anybody that I love. But here I am. This is my messaging to myself. And the worse meditation I have, the more I learn about myself. The most uncomfortable, the hardest for me to stay on task is when I learn the, the most. It's not soothing, but I learn. And so once we start paying attention to the messaging, like this is what I'm telling myself and that's mean, you know, that becomes that start of the process. And then we have to work with the content itself. Um, and I do a lot of, I, I try to, I try to teach people how to diffuse from the thought. You know, we have this idea that if we're having this thought, therefore it's true, capital T true versus a thought that we're having. Um, and so stepping back from it and like, I'm having the experience of anxiety. I'm having this experience of rumination. Um, and sometimes we can kind of pick it apart and realize it's ridiculous and that's helpful. And sometimes we can't. So we have to go, okay, this isn't help. Just like engaging in this process at all is not helpful for me. And then there is, you know, there's other skills from that. But the big thing is the mind is bigger than the brain, right? We're talking about the processing that the brain is doing. And so the minute we are able to step back and recognize what our brain is doing, that's our mind. That's our bigger self. And that's what helps us realize that the brain is not its entirety of our being. Right. So anything that the brain is doing is not doesn't define us necessarily. And that's what's cool about being human is that self-awareness and that mind being able to step back and going, I think you're losing it right now. You want to you want to go have some coffee. You want to go for a walk. Is there something else that might be helpful? This doesn't seem to be very helpful. And that's what helps us diffuse from that thought cycle that we're having. Mm. And then and I wrote about is that's, you know, that's our survival mechanism. And once we pay attention to it and saying, yeah, yeah, I've got it. I'm paying attention. Thank you. That cycle breaks very quickly. Um, and that's we know that from stroke research that, you know, we're meant to have this flash of emotion as information. 
And if we attend to it rather than try to get rid of it, then the brain's like, okay, well, if you got it under control, then I'm good. I'll, I'll go back to playing cards um, and leaves us alone. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, so two things I noticed uh, in my own self was that one, I had a huge inner critic. Like, so you're talking about that. And then two, because I tried to stuff my negative emotions, I, I wasn't curious about those emotions. Yeah. Right. And I, I've loved that idea that you've talked about where we have to remain curious about mm -hmm. what's coming up inside of us and then create a new safe convo. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then you've got, so mindful meditation would be one of those ways to have this new safe convo, right? You're, mm -hmm. and, and you've listed out all kinds of things that can help with that. Um, but mindful meditation has been, I'm in a group now that's in Kansas mm -hmm. city. I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to learn how to practice that and become mindful of those things, become aware of that inner critic versus self, uh, compassion, um, become aware of those things. That's mm -hmm. been super yeah. helpful. And I, and I did actually a whole, a zine, a pamphlet on self-compassion, sort of building on Kristen Neff's work and bringing in some of Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication into that model. Yeah. That I'm human. This is a common human experience. Um, so we're really connecting back to humanity when we do that. And I, lo I love Kristen Neff's work. You know, she's up the road from me at UT. Um, and I wrote, I, I write about self-compassion in all my books it's one of those things that people are like oh my god i get it leave me alone <laughs> but that's been so helpful to me and i sort of infuse Kristen neff's work with a lot of marshall rosenberg the nonviolent communication expert because he talks about self self empathy about like what's important like what's my need you know here and this and connecting into that is the next part of mindfulness and so i've written about that and i've had people like once they were doing that work when they got that that they really deserve self-compassion. Like you're ready to graduate. You don't need anything else from me. We're good. Um, you, you got the tools down when people are like, okay, so I'm doing the self-compassion thing, but anyway, I'm still a piece of crap. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not yeah. done yet. And it's... once they go, Oh, I'm not a piece of crap. I'm a human. Yeah. <laughs> you're good. Now, now you graduate, you get your lollipop and you go. Yeah. <laughs> Shame was so hard in that ties in with my inner critic. Right. And, and so yeah. like I always said, you know, I'm pretty kind and compassionate and forgiving toward everybody else mm -hmm. except myself. Right. And so and then you separate yourself from humanity when you do that. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is okay. I'm fundamentally broken when other people get it and you don't, you're now saying I'm not human. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a huge thing for uh, health, for mental health and for spirit, yeah. for wholeness, spirituality. I think that, that's just, just so critical. You mentioned a bunch of other things on how to have this new safe convo. Um, you mentioned music and you, mm -hmm. I, I'm just curious, this is kind of a fun thing, but you said you grew up on old blues vinyl. Yes. Uh, yes, tell, yes what, who yes, are some I of your artists that you like? I'm curious. Um, probably the first song I ever sang as a toddler was Taj Mahal, Fish and Blues. That's what <laughs> I grew up on. Um, my mom was a, you know, a Central California baby and, you know, grew up seeing him at clubs and stuff. And so I got to bring her back to see him a few years before she passed. Um, cause he's still out making music and doing stuff. So wow. yeah, that I grew up on, you know, my parents didn't have money. They were very poor. So you got, you got PBS and if you were lucky and we had, you know, we had the vinyl. And so that is what I grew up on. And my kids to a certain extent are like, you know, I, I kind of like your music better than, you know, 
this other stuff that's out. I'm like, no, there's there's some stuff coming out that's still excellent. But I agree with you that Taj is still the king. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I uh, I I had a friend in in Ireland, so I was in Ireland a couple of years ago. But um, you know, Van Morrison lives in Ireland. And he has uh, one of my friends that's Irish is a is a vineyard pastor in Ireland, mm-hmm. but he married uh, an African American gal from America. Her name's Dana Masters, and she is now she's been singing with Van Morrison now for a couple, two or three years now. She's mm-hmm. she's his main backup, and so that's been that's been kind of fun to revisit mm-hmm. Van. He's still. They still perform uh, oh, yeah. tours and all that kind of stuff. I've enjoyed him. I, I like blues. So, yeah. And then you mentioned exercise. You mentioned nature. You mentioned mm-hmm. journaling. You mentioned telling your story, reframing your story. Those were all some of those ideas in your book that you were talking about on how to have a convo that's safe with mm-hmm. your with yourself, with your past, with your trauma. Those are all and, yeah. ways that we and can it, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and they're all evidence-based. We all have this different way in, right? You and I both happen to be people that respond very well to mindfulness, meditation, self-compassion work, whatever. And there's some people that are like, I've tried it. I, my skin gets itchy. I can't. So they may need to be able to go hiking. Um, they need, may need to be able to turn on music and, you know, and or whatever. And so all of these things are there because there's no one way in. In fact, I get very cranky at therapists who say, this is the technique. It works for everybody. It works quickly. Like you're, you're telling people then if they don't do it right, that they failed versus saying there's tons of ways of doing it. We'll figure it out. If I don't know how to do it, I'll find you somebody who does, but you're not the failure of the technique is. And so all of my books always include, hey, this comes from metacognitive therapy. This comes from MAP. This comes from DBT. Here's a bunch of stuff to try. So if you find the thing that works, you can go do more in that area. That's that's excellent. So it's interesting. Mindfulness has been good for me. Music. So I'm a big endurance athlete and mm-hmm. cycling, but I don't like to be indoors on a trainer. So I, even in yeah. even in Kansas City, I'm out riding when it's freezing. I'm out riding on frozen trails. I'm out and I love nature. So I love to hike, backpack, mm-hmm. rock climb, do all these nature things. And I just found I, I found that that's where I find. Um, so, oh, gosh, it helps me calm. It calms that inner voice that's ruminating and running and everything and. I was even reading, I'm curious, uh, this, what is it called? This EMDR, is it? Is this? Yeah. And um, So EMDR, I'm not trained in. I'm trained in a version of it called brain spotting. Um, I tend to do a lot of somatics. Brain spotting is, was, um, was created by an individual who was a master EMDR practitioner um, and started training with Peter Levine and learning more about somatic experience, incorporated the two. Um, and I like it because of, it brings that somatic component back in. I'm very big on this is nervous system. This is the body. This is a th- this is mind body connection. And um, 
it for me has better tool. I've had people tell me either EMDR was amazing or it was horrible and it re-traumatized them. There doesn't seem to be a lot of in between. And so I'm like, well, could we correct and maybe not have this percentage of the population having a bad experience? And David Grant's brain spotting seems to do that. There's a lot of regrounding skills. I'm a big believer in not having people leave my office with their entrails hanging out. So <laughs> Um, David, like you owe me now a couple K because I just <laughs> pimped brain spotting. But, um, so I use like that idea that there is an that eye movement element element where we're connecting to this memory and then working through it somatically is, and he kind of stumbled upon it. He was, um, in New York after nine 11 and was working, worked with like over a hundred people who experienced the same trauma. Like what a really interesting, um, unfortunately, um, nested case study. And so he saw all these different experiences of the same trauma in these different ways. And he sort of bumped into this way of doing it. And what he said was with training with Peter Levine, who's sort of the master of somatic experiencing, Peter Levine said, yes, it's, it's, um, it is a very strong tool, maybe sometimes too strong. Hmm. You know, and so that's where brain spotting came to be. And it's kind of becoming hip now. There was just an article about it in Yoga Journal. And I'm like, well, that works well for me since I'm the only practitioner in town at the moment. Hmm. Um, so I like that it incorporates systematics, which I believe very strongly in, plus the really good science of, of EMDR. So I can't speak to EMDR in specifics. Because I haven't trained in that. And I know people that are do that do and they're wonderful. And I refer to it if that's what people really want to do. Um, I I feel more comfortable with that sort of offshoot approach. Interesting. If, if my, you don't believe in it, it's not gonna work. That's you know, my thing. What we know about any kind of therapy is the therapist and the client both have to believe like this is how problems are created and mm -hmm. this is how we fix them and we're in this together, otherwise it doesn't work. Um I I interviewed a gal here in town that that's sort of the DBT specialist, but she's also worked with EMDR. And her her experience was that if the traumas are early childhood, like before a certain age, like eight or nine, that the EMDR can actually re-traumatize. But then for older adults, it's actually proven pretty successful. I'm just curious if you go out and walks on nature, if you're cycling in nature or walking in nature and you're you're having you know how your eyes are moving horizontally yeah. all the time when you're hiking through nature and stuff like that. I was curious if there's any kind of connection to that. I was just like, why is nature so other than the spiritual component, the mystery of nature or whatever, but why is it so healing to me to just move through nature? I don't know. It's been interesting. I, I mean, I think part of it is that, I mean, the electromagnetic energy of the earth and the human body are slightly different. And when we have on shoes and we're on our concrete floors and all these things, we're disconnected from that, which is why even going outside barefoot for a few minutes can be very grounding. Hmm. Um, and that's sort of what we think, like things like Reiki, which um, actually have like a lot of evidence behind it. And I get people who send me hate mail like that's stupid. And I'm like, well, then don't do it. Um, <laughs> but anything I suggest has evidence behind it. And like UC Davis actually has a lab for this. So like if, if it doesn't work for you, don't do it. That's fine. Um, but that's what they were harnessing is that something about Reiki was reconnecting us to that that electromagnetic energy of the earth. And I think mm. that's part of it. We're meant to be outside. 
we're supposed to be. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're, we live in this. And I think that the, the um, that wonder element of it is what Mary Catherine Bateson calls it. Um, she just died like um, a week and a half ago, uh, mm. the daughter of Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead. Mm. Um, and she was also an ethnographer and a linguist. And she said, because people asked her, like her parents were atheists. She um, was not. And they said, so, you know, like, what do you think about spirituality versus religion? And she's like, that's the wrong question. She said, you can do either by rote and it not have any meaning, um, whether you pray or you have crystal, you know, whatever it is, it can be something that's done by rote that really doesn't have meaning. And she said, it's engaging in the world with a sense of wonder, which you can do with religion, you can do with spirituality, you can do as a secular humanist. That's what connects us to that bigger. That's that purposeful belonging is that sense of wonder. And it's really hard to be out in nature and not experience the wonderment of the world. Mm. I love that. I just wrote a blog a couple of weeks ago on childlike wonder. Yes. So I love that. Um, if you listen to uh, Krista Tippett's podcast, she replayed that interview fairly recently, about a week before uh, Mary Catherine Bateson passed. So it's um, it's fairly recently in her um, On Being archives. And it was it was really beautiful to hear this woman who had this wealth, you know, decades of experience speaking of it that way. Hmm. That's that's good. I like that. Uh, journaling has been a huge thing for me. Um, I, and I was always a sporadic journaler, but since I went through this big meltdown, I've journaled like almost like free journaled my emotions and yeah. stuff every morning. That's a part mm -hmm. of my, and then I do some meditation and then reading and all that. But, um, it's been, it's been interesting to me to, to something about, and I do it with an old pen, pen and ink, you know, like I have yes. a, like an ink pen and paper, mm -hmm. And there's been something super therapeutic about writing out with pen and ink onto paper, my emotions, what's going through. It's, it's, uh, it's so curious about the brain science behind journaling, because that's one of the things you mentioned. As yeah. And we know that like handwriting, I tell people like, if you, if you're just going to do it on your phone, that's fine. It, it, do it versus, you know, always better than don't do it. Do a voice memo if you need to. But if you, we can actually do it on paper with pens and we're middle-aged, so we're used to that. Um, that <laughs> activates and completes a different neuro circuit in the brain. Like we do get a different experience from doing it that way. Um, and I did like a workbook journaling for people who hate journaling. And I kind of, I wrote a, you know, and I like, I'm one of those people that I don't like it, but it's good for me. So I understand whether people are like, but no. Um, and I have people that will do journaling and then they bring it into therapy and they read it out loud to me. And then they kind of go, oh my God, like I said that, I, be I believe that. Like e sometimes even the, you know, the writing, it helps them connect back to it and then like the reading it out loud with somebody can be another step so there's a lot of things you can do um i love writing the mind alive um the proprioceptive writing hmm. which is getting into this the, the somatic body again um because one of the questions that it prompts you to do is you're writing something and you're like you know and i was really pissed off about and you're like what do i mean by and so you're even challenging your your own understanding of language and linguistically i'm using this word and i mean this thing and so you're, it's helping you unpack and sort of excavate deeper by, um, and even paying attention to, I want, this is something that I noticed, but I didn't write about it, but I'm going to, you know, kind of put a post-it on that and maybe write about it later. Um, and so I will, I've had a lot, several clients use that technique to do their trauma narrative. Hmm. 
and, yeah, and reframing. Um, how how do how do we reframe stories uh, so that they're because I I, I want to get into you, you mentioned at the end of your book how to how to be present for people and how mm-hmm. to be healing versus say BS stuffed people, you know, mm-hmm. and in the religious community, we we've learned a lot of BS phrases that we say yes. to people. Right. Um, and Spiritual I kind of bypassing. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm curious about um, reframing your story. What, what are the key things to reframing a story that um, can I be healing? I'll- yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that gets back into recognizing our story as one of survivorship, that I was a victim at this time, and now I'm a survivor of. Um, but there's also, there's that diffusing element. And again, you know, being raised to question everything from the minute I could talk, I was the person in my very first semester of graduate school arguing about cognitive behavioral therapy. And my professor was like, okay, fine, you don't have to use it. Um Because my problem was, but what if life sucks? You know, you're saying like, you know, everything that's going on, all of your uh, problems are a product of your thoughts and you're you're having these thoughts that, um, you know, I'm like, yeah, but, but I work, like I was working on a sort of community treatment team. I worked with people that were, their lives suck. They're not wrong. Um, and that's mean, like, don't tell people that if they would, they need to just think their way through things. That's, that's unkind. It's unfair. It's setting people up for failure. And I was literally the only person in the history of the program that was told, okay, fine. You can have an eclectic approach. You don't have to be CBT because you're making us tired. (laughs) It's my, all my mom's fault. She told me to question everything, but of recognizing that it may be true, but is it possible to reframe it in a way that is more helpful to where I'm trying to go now? This is something that happened to me that was awful, but I survived. Um, you know, working with teens who's, you know, who were who in the child serving system, for example, you know, would say, you know, like my mom, my mom doesn't love me enough to get off drugs. And so here I am continue to be in foster care. And that was, there was truth to that, right? But it wasn't a helpful way of saying it, you know, your, your mom is really struggling with this. And this is, this is not a thought that she has, has won at this point. Doesn't mean that she doesn't love you. Um, this is just where she's, she is. And that's not about her love for you or your, your worthiness of being loved. Drugs are a demon. And, you know, hopefully she will be able to overcome this and you will be able to have that relationship. And all you can do right now is, you know, take care of you and recognize your worth and your value, you know, and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And that's the reframing of the stories. This is a horrible situation. I'm going to do the best I can with it is appropriate. I don't like the spiritual bypassing. Of, this is a lesson. Well, that's presuming that God is really mean. And I don't think, I don't think God is mean, um, you know, just handing out these horrible lessons all the time. <laughs> things happen because they do. Um, and you know, the, the, the grace is, you know, or the lesson is not in the thing that happened. It's in our response to it. Um, that's, that's where the spirituality is. That's where the grace is. That's where the healing is, is horrible things happen because they do. And how we respond to it is what, is what helps us get through it. It's what helps us deepen our own faith experience or our own sense of wonder or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Well, it's. It's like it's in my in my adult case that I just went through, you know, I made some bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And so that created some of the mess of my life is my yeah. own bad decisions. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, like this, one of the BS things you mentioned, platitudes, is God never gives us more than what we can handle, right? And this is in, and I mean, there's even a verse in the New Testament that talks about how, you know, he won't tempt us beyond what we're able to. And then I, you know, I look at my story, I'm like going, well, he, I I didn't handle any of it very well. You know, I mean, it all like a perfect storm hit me and I felt like I collapsed, literally Mm -hmm. collapsed. And and then I, you know, it's like, I, it was a, I questioned everything I ever believed in mm-hmm. this collapse and tried to then figure, well, yeah, did God do this? Is there, th- and I love a redemptive arc to a story, right? And yeah. you mentioned that in your book too, how we all love redemptive stories. And I kind of hope like, God, I hope God can, somebody, something can do something with this story right now, but we yearn for that. And I'm in you know, how do we accept it, radically accept even negative things mm-hmm. and then rebuild hope for the future? Uh, that's yeah. challenging, especially when we feel like we're <laughs> we were part of the cause of the whole thing. Sure. And it's one of the congratulations, still human. Right? <laughs> um, you know, and that's, you know, that's my line to myself is like, you're a therapist. And you got a lot of crazy going on, right? What's up, girl? Congratulations. Still human. <laughs> is that we're always working with that because we are, we are still working within our own humanity and trying to do better. Um, and I was not, I'm not a Bible literalist and wasn't raised to be one. I think Rob, Rob Bell's book, you know, what is the Bible is, is probably a good reference for people who are kind of exploring that, that, you know, we're presuming it through the lens of 2021. We're making all these presumptions and, you know, I see this all the time, you know, like, um, you know, and ethnographies and stuff is we're presuming meaning of something that made sense linguistically at this point may not mean the same thing now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we can, I like to err on the side of, you know, let's not be mean, including to ourselves. And this idea that, you know, God is, you know, handing out, you know, spankings <laughs> is not particularly helpful to anyone leading a better life. You know, I, you know, I was raised with this idea uh, of God or who, you know, whoever that is for you going, Oh God, kiddo, what are you doing? You know, and <laughs> versus like, ha ha. Now, now you understand, um, you know, that the, the bad things happen because that's being human mm-hmm. and that's, it's not a, it's not a meted out punishment and it's not that we were supposed to learn from it. And it's not that we got too uppity. So we were mm-hmm. being pushed to our knees. I, I wasn't raised that way. I don't believe in that. And I don't think it's helpful for our mental health. Um, And that's what the spiritual bypassing is, right? Of like, oh, well, that that's just, we never do the deeper work if we go, oh, well, that's just how it's meant to be. Mm. Um, And so we're not doing any deeper work of like, what got me there? Was Mm -hmm. it meant to be? Like, this Mm -hmm. was just the preordained, this is the crap that I had to go through in order to share my story with others. Or we could do the deeper work of being a human is really hard and I'm frail. And these are the things that hurt me that I have to pay attention to, to be a better person. And mm-hmm. and bad things happen because they do. Um, and that's the deeper work. Um, um, is it masters wrote uh, spiritual bypassing? Um, I don't. And then there is know. another, ter- there's another term for it. Avoidance and holy drag. I love that. That okay. term as well. Of like, you know, we're avoiding that deeper work when we just say, oh, well, that was my lesson. Okay, mm-hmm. well, did you learn it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 
Um, and I, and we never have that chance to do that deeper internal work. Mm. If we say that, Oh, well, yeah, that's just what God wanted me to do. I'm going to get a lot of hate mail after this. No, you're not. No, (laughs) that's, I think that's an important one that, that we do the work that we need to do, that we dive into it. And, uh, you know, I think when we heal that there can be good things that emerge mm-hmm. out of it and mm-hmm. we can learn from it. And that I certainly would, if I'm going to go through a horrible amount of pain, I'd rather learn from it than not. Right. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, time heals everything, you know, another, yeah. another BS platitude that you hear that everywhere, right? Yes. Yeah. Pe- yeah. Well, it's healed over the surface, but you still have that big festering wound under the skin, but we can call it healed since we don't see it on the surface mm-hmm. anymore. Sure. Yeah. I found that, um, people who just walked through everything with me and loved me and were present with me and weren't trying to preach at me, weren't trying to scold me, weren't trying to do, you know, all the things weren't trying to do the platitudes. Those were the most mm-hmm. meaningful things for me. And that's, that's always been my experience in, in those tough places is that people are like, you want to go for a walk? Do you need anything? Okay. Well, if you don't know, if you think of something, let me know, you know, what it, whatever it is. I just had someone yesterday ask me on Twitter, you know, how do I support this, this person who I love that's going through this severe mental health crisis? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. Did you ask them <laughs> you know, um, of just going and, and also it's okay if they don't know and you can figure it out together, but rather than trying to fix. And one of the things I wrote about in the book is people trying to help me by doing things that made them feel better about what I was going through. Um, and it was not about me. It was about their discomfort. And the more we can go, like, this is me wanting to do something that's about my own discomfort, rather something that's actually helpful for them. That's a good perspective shift. Mm. I told the story of the friend buying me a ham. I want want a ham. Um, I really, really did not want a ham. Um, And that was, she had lost her husband. And so her stuff was coming up. And so she wanted to, like, check this box of, I did something for my friend. I didn't, I didn't need a ham. Hmm. Um, so that's become a metaphor of like, people are going to give you a lot of ham and they love mm-hmm. you. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, when it's your turn, please don't give anyone ham. Yeah. yeah. Well-meaning, right? Most, for most people it's well-meaning, but why, why is it so hard for us just to sit with somebody without advice and love them? maybe in silence. Why is that? I mean, cause it, it's, it brings up our, we have so many fears of everything, fears of pain, fears of death, fear of overwhelm that we want to feel in better control of the situation. When somebody's going through something that feels very, very out of control, our mirror neurons are firing and we want to feel better for ourselves. We're, we're hurt. We hurt with people. Um, and so we don't want, to, we don't want them to hurt and we don't want to hurt. It's not, it's not a place of selfishness. It's a discomfort with feeling pain that we're feeling really with them. And, you know, as we learn more to sit with our own pain, we learn more to sit with others. Mm, I think that's huge. And then the phrase, you know, I know how you feel. And I think if we just switch it up a little bit and saying, I, I have just enough idea of what you're going through that my heart is really hurting for you. Mm. Well, I appreciated those. Um, uh, You, you end with this talk about grief and you mm-hmm. quote C.S. Lewis in that little chapter. Um, mm-hmm. No one ever told me that grief is so much like fear. That's a quote from C.S. Lewis's uh, An Observance of Grief. Yeah. 
And I, I love that quote. Why is, why is grief so much like fear? Because I mean, there's, there's two fundamental, there's two fundamental hum, hum, uh, human fears, the, the, the fear of abandonment and the fear of overwhelmment and a grief experience, a losing of someone hits both. Right. Mm. Um, and that's kind of getting a little Jungian. I always tell people that that's probably about the only time I get Jungian is, is those are the two things that we're most afraid of as human beings that are connected to other human beings, abandonment moment and that's what's exactly what's happening so we're having to sit at the crossroads of our two primal fears um and grief is the process and we don't we don't have a cultural narrative about grief we don't have a normalization of grief we've sanitized it um versus you know recognizing that grief is this other expression of love this is now a different love whether we um, lose a partner and we get divorced, whether we lose someone in death, you know, what we lose a dear friend, you know, our, our friendship outgrows or whatever it is, there is, that's the transformation of that, that experience of love. Um, and we fear that change so much and we fear that, that transition and we don't recognize it. It's just like, okay, well, they're gone versus um, this is the, you know, a transformation of that experience. There's a really good book that came out after mine. Otherwise um, I would have talked about it in that book is called, it's okay that you're not okay. And it was written by a woman who lost her husband very suddenly and violently. And it's a phenomenal book and it's very much about that experience. And if I ever update the brain book, I will talk more about her book in it because it's wonderful. You, you mentioned memorializing grief in some ways. What, as a healthy way to process grief? Or you had, I think it was one of your exercises in the back of the book. Uh, as a, did you mention that? Or am I, am I thinking I am trying to remember, I'm trying to remember, but I also wrote the book five years ago. Yeah, no um, problem. <laughs> so, I, I can't remember um, what I wrote two weeks ago. So anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're, you know, of, of processing grief for what it is of recognizing, I mean, a, a lot of that whole chapter is you're allowed to have this experience. It's not a linear model. Uh, one of the things that I get cranky about is people use Elizabeth Kubler's Ross stages of dying and have called it the stages of grief. Well, dying is a linear process that has an end. Uh, grief does not. And she's even said that like, stop, <laughs> stop. It's not, that's not what, that's not what the, the, the stages are. And so it's this, this cyclical thing. Um, you know, my, my late husband, my kid's dad, um, and I've been remarried for several years to a wonderful man and he's been gone for over a decade, but I can still walk into a bakery and go, Oh, they have his bear claws. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, he's not, he's not gone and that process is never done i have a different relationship when i notice that i can be really glad that he's there and be glad that it came that i can have that experience of grief without it being so ragged and painful but i don't want him to go away i don't want him to go away for anybody who loved him hmm. i'm thinking you know like i as a pastor i uh, officiated a lot of funerals along the way and and there was this there's this whole process that we've built around physical death but it's, and you know, but then it's like when we go through emotional grief, um, loss, uh, that's in the emotional realm, that's not physical death. It's like, we don't seem to have 
have put any kind of memorial processes together for that type of like that type of grief that's not just physical death and i'm i'm i i was just curious about that cuz loss is you know is a part of uh trauma i think and and um yeah so i was just trying to think through processes that help people deal with other types of loss other than physical death and and I, I think you had an exercise or two in there about that. I, I, I probably did. But even, you know, just the thing that you, you said were just there with me. They didn't try to resolve anything. They didn't try and blow smoke up. My, you know, all of that. That's what you needed. That was the process of having that connected belonging in that experience of loss without people trying to tell you that it's better or worse, or this is the lesson you're supposed to get of it, that, you know, the disenfranchised grief, that this is a grief that you're not allowed to experience versus this is your grief and you're allowed to experience it. And we, we're not going to, again, quantify it of who has it better or worse. Well, good. Well, thank you. I, I don't want to um, take us too much further for our, with our time, but um I would like people to know how they can, like, do you have a website? We've got your books that we've already mentioned. What's your website location? Um, so I have a couple, um, the intimacy doctor and that's a dr.com. It's microcosm publishing. Okay. Um, and yeah, and all, all of their books are really about, you know, having an empowered life. So there's DIY culture, you know, sort of the original punks, but in that DIY sense of the word, you know, mental health from that more pragmatic perspective, um, you know, people ask me if my, my books are appropriate for kids. And I'm like, well, if you don't mind the language, the topics themselves are completely appropriate. In fact, teens tend to adore them. If you have a discomfort with language, then the brain book is going to get its its G-rated version so people can actually use it um, in, you know, child serving systems eventually. Um, but the, the book was written how I talk, you know, and I grew up my, you know, my Dad is a longtime member of AA, so I grew up in AA communities, and he was queer military. Like mm-hmm. you know, so I and I and I work in substance recovery. Um, my my husband is a recovery coach, so that is that yeah. is the language yeah. of our people. I hear you. I hear you. I've yeah. been in that community, um, so yeah, yeah. Um, and I figure that um, when you try and write a book for everybody, you end up writing a book for nobody, right? And so the book is going to feel the most authentic if I'm authentic, and if I sound like myself, that comes across. Mm-hmm. And I want people to feel like I'm telling them this story, um, which and so if that's not going to work for you language wise. I absolutely understand, but I like to give that warning. Cause then I have people go like, I read two of your books and I just don't like the language. And I'm like, you've got to stop reading my books. You've got to stop. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, very, very fun for me to read and enjoyed the content. And I, I loved your heart for people. I loved your heart for healing and, and it comes through, you know, that you, you have this passion for people. You know, one, one thing I'd, love to do in the future one of these days uh i want to do a whole series on on just sexuality mm-hmm. because i grew up uh with a lot in a religious based system that had a lot of shame around sexuality yes. and so i kind of want to do that with a whole bunch of interviews and some good sex therapists and all that and i listened to some of your comments on one of your podcasts 
on a, on an interview you did with the, you, your work in sex therapy, and I found it fascinating. I didn't want to yeah. jump into that today. That, but <laughs> if you would, if at some point in the future, if I could do that with you, it'd be really fun. And uh, oh, I, I think, I'd love to. I think our audience would be fascinated with some of the research that you have behind your sex therapy work is fascinating. So, yeah. And that's, you know, I'm, I love doing that because it's, again, it's reclaiming the narrative so we can do real healing because Mm. once we start like, Oh, well, it's a sex addiction. We're, we're bypassing again, right. We're not doing the real work of what the problem is and you know, what, what the, um, the, the actual data show, I always say like, I'm, I'm very etiology neutral. I'm going to go with the data. If I hear that, you know, porn is really a problem, then that's what we're going with. So um, I like to be really grounded in the science. That's where my work comes from. I like and even, that. Yeah. Even becoming a sexologist was about the trauma work. I was running trauma groups and I was having people tell me, like, I don't know how to have sex sober. I've never done it. And I'm like, I need to learn more about sexual intimacy so I can be with people in this process. Like that was not my plan. I'm like, Oh, ha ha ha. I like pervy stuff. I'm going to become a sexologist. <laughs> um, it, I I had to learn more to fill the, like, you know, when people come through the door saying, this is what the problem. And if, if enough people do that, you're finally, like, you know, message received universe. I will, I will do that work. Yeah. Mm. Well, that'll be a teaser for, uh, for another one in the future, but I really appreciate you taking the time to, to meet with us. And, uh, I think our audience will be, uh, will really enjoy your, your books if, if they can, you know, get past the, uh, the language. And that's awesome. I think to get a child's version out there, a G version, because I know mm-hmm. parents and kids, uh, need to have some of these conversations as well. And in the fa- family therapy end of things. So thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for joining Spirituality Adventures. And we are just so grateful for this connection. We are uh, we are in the winter right now in Kansas City. So this will be coming out in a few weeks. So thank you and appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Hi, Media Productions.